0: Welcome to the Cross-Cultural Psych Podcast with Professor Paul Youngbin Kim. This podcast features conversations on the intersection of psychology, culture, and faith with renowned scholars in psychology and related fields. And now, here's Dr. Paul Youngbin Kim. Jeannie is a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified clinical trauma professional. She's an accomplished international speaker, providing keynotes and workshops for corporations, community organizations, and colleges. Jeannie is the founder and CEO of Nuna's Nunchi, which provides mental health education and resources for organizations around the world. It is also a global tour operator offering K-culture tours, including K-drama and K-pop sites, cultural activities, and wellness experiences. Jeannie is also the founder and CEO of Your Change Provider, a clinical practice based in the U.S. found on solutions in her unique trademark framework, Cultural Confidence. Cultural Confidence program provides psychoeducation in all sectors from corporate to schools. She has presented her trademark curriculum for many corporations such as Eventbrite, J.Crew, Microsoft, and the NFL. Very impressive. Uh, Her memoir, A's for Authentic, Not for Anxieties or for Straight A's, hit number one international bestseller on Amazon in 2021. Again, thank you, Jeannie, for being here. Um, it's a pleasure to have you be here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I read your book, uh, your memoir, with great interest, and I could relate to quite a few things that you shared in the book as a fellow Korean or Korean-American. And I'm curious if you could give our readers one a- a brief overview of why you wrote the memoir, and then two, how your readers have responded to it.
1: Sure. It's probably, you know, as any book or memoir, it's like years in the making, you know, when you're thinking. But I really decided to start writing. It was right before the pandemic, and then it happened, of course. The pandemic happened, which we all didn't really predict that it got published in the pandemic. But I kind of was stuck at one section of the book, as I know most writers or authors get to, And I finished it actually after or during the process of 2020, COVID 2020, when we're all at the height of lockdown. And I helped facilitate and lead a summer virtual program for a Korean American organization called the Council of Korean Americans, where I'm very uh, involved in, for students and grad students and young professionals that had internships that had to be given up, right? Because of COVID. So they developed a program, which I, I think was great. We did it last minute because COVID hit and it was during that process because my focus was mental health and identity. And I led weeks. I did, I led sessions every week as well as safe spaces every week. And it was a wonderful six week program. And it was during that time when Korean Americans, students, second generation Korean Americans and, you know, young professionals were talking about the exact things that I struggled with. So I was thinking, okay, you're having the same issues or talking about the same things I struggled with. Even back in a day. So that's when I, I was inspired, as you know you what most are by people's stories, to finish the book because what I found was a lot of folks felt alone. And most people do, right? They were like, it's just me and it's not. And we all have those experiences, especially when it's second generation Korean American experience. So I finished the book because of that program and being motivated to share my story. To make people feel like they're less alone and also it was my own story that i had to tell because i have a different perspective now many years later much healthier perspective right as most people get as they get older and so it was to benefit really the the second generation asian american population
0: and how did folks respond uh, what kind yeah. of feedback have you received since well, it was published
1: <laughs> yeah. so mm-hmm. that's always hard hey what do you think mm-hmm. of the book mm-hmm. so from what i've seen good feedback very raw like you said some folks there are a few folks that are colleagues of mine not just in the mental health space but just colleagues that i respect that had a hard time actually midway through the book because it reminded them of their own upbringing you know i'm talking about some raw things and being real and authentic and so i think when anybody talks about mental health and you're talking about asian mental health and you're talking about stigma and then bringing up parents it can be a little triggering so the feedback was good but also oh, Jeannie, like some people couldn't finish it. They were honest. They're like, okay. So I got to the part and they just said, it just, it was hard. And so I went, why? And I, I go, hopefully it wasn't, you know, you take it personally. They're like, no, it was reminding me too much of mine. And so they weren't ready yet. So, but generally speaking, that to me is, I'm still glad I wrote it, you know, and it's still very, let's, let's be Asian here. It's hard when you have to talk about your own stuff. So even me promoting my memoir, I don't ask much. I mean, I don't go, Hey, what'd you think of my book? It's different if it was a, self-help book, but this is So it's still very difficult, even for me as a Korean American to even address and ask folks. But the the feedback on the most part has been warm and very inviting.
0: And like you said, sometimes the fact that some parts are difficult to read, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? And that can actually be in its own way healing as well for folks to recognize Wow, yeah. that was really hard to read. Or I need to take yeah. a step back and process why that was hard to read.
1: Yes, yeah, t- totally. If I got them thinking, and if anything, it reminded of them. So th- that's the exact reason why I wrote it. We're not alone. I felt so alone, which is why, as you read, as my 14-year-old self, that is very of a real experience. We feel so alone, even as adults. But then when you read it going, oh my goodness, Jeannie's speaking my mind. That to me is very re- rewarding, and I've heard that a lot. Even mm-hmm. if it's hard to process, right?
0: Yeah. And like you mentioned that during COVID, when people were feeling alone because of this global pandemic, and then combined with sort of this Korean American or Asian American experience that you're highlighting, I'm so glad that the memoir had that function of helping people feel like they're not alone.
1: Yeah. Yes. Thank you.
0: And you touched upon this already, but I want to talk about learning about Korean culture because you grew up as a Korean American uh, under family who taught you about Korean culture. There are many parts of the book that talk about the positives of that, right, of the Korean culture, but also some challenges as well. And Mm -hmm. I wonder if we could have a sort of a candid conversation about the rewards and challenges of being socialized into the Korean culture.
1: Yeah, it's too bad we don't have like five hours, (laughs) right? You could talk about it a lot. It's it's a, a subject that people talk about on the side when they're Korean and Korean American, like 1.5 or second generation. I think the, the rewards are actually much more than the challenges. Like it's funny when you're a teenager, you see only challenges, right? That's teenagers now and treating them and having them myself, I'm like, yeah, obviously we see the glass half empty always. We're always anti this. And I remember thinking back now, going, "Wow, I really chose not to appreciate the Korean culture because because it was all around me. So that challenge there was that it was, I would say, fed by my parents. I was fed the Korean culture through the perspective of first generation immigrants, right? Who my parents, as I've shared in the book, are highly educated. so a very different background than some others, where they spoke English in the home, you know, obviously, and then obviously they would sometimes respond to being Korean. So I understood everything, but it was very a Western exposure, but then a very Korean discipline, right? Very Korean traditions. And I wouldn't change the traditions. In fact, I'd appreciate them growing up going, oh, and, you know, on January 1st, or some of the games we played wearing in and all the things that we did even on my marriage and even growing up with my grandparents, right, in Korea. So all of that was, I think, okay. But when you're growing up in a very Western society, I happen to grow up in a very white suburban neighborhood. So very thankful where I grew up. And I remember knowing it back then. Well, I'm lucky to grow up in a nice neighborhood, but I was thinking, wow, it kind of sucks. I'm the only Asian, let alone the only Korean. So no one really understood my experience, including food and kimchi, things that were every day. So the challenge was my parents didn't understand that. They were just like, well, do this. And I'd be like, but no one else is doing it, Right. And as a teenager, that's the last thing you want to stand out and then be alone and being like, hey, I'm bringing pop to school or, you know, "Pugogi." Now everybody's like, oh, my gosh, you're so lucky. But back in a day in the 80s and early 90s, when I was growing up, it was not appreciated by the general public. And so my parents didn't choose to see that. Where I think the second generation parents like myself, I would say, We can see that a little better. So I think it's easier for our kids. So that was the biggest challenge, just feeling like my parents chose to not really see things. But then now you think back, they're immigrants. That's hard for them. They were trying to do things and be successful and then push me. So, so much is so much more understandable now. But back then when you're a teenager and you felt almost, I said fed, but force fed a little bit, hey, you have to do this. And I'd be like, why? And I'm the type of person, even back in my my teenage years, I'd be like, why, right? And then they don't like the, you ans- asking why, right? That's not a Korean thing. Don't ask why. So I remember thinking, well, why can't I ask why? So it was like a double-edged sword. I'm going stop it. And then when you're cho- told to be quiet and silent, especially when your personality wasn't, it was very difficult. So again, going, let me go back to now the rewards. The rewards are though, at the end of the day, a lot of what I teach is appreciating that it's not an either or. There is no either or in mental health, it's and. <laughs> it's and and both, because and it's about, the and is you have problems with your culture sometimes, even to this day. You're like, oh, I really don't like that. But the and is, but then I also know that this is so rewarding, the way that they've taught me so much about family and work ethics, the things that I appreciate that we see in some of the Korean content today that is very well appreciated, that I see in myself and those you can't take away those values those are wonderful values so that's what i mean by the and so accepting the rewards you know knowing there's challenges but then navigating through them and i think that is part of mental health
0: that's really well put and i think you're rightly pointing out the complexity of the reality of rewards and challenges of a culture you can't neatly dichotomize those things right sometimes the rewards are also simultaneously challenges. And we see a lot of examples of that in the Korean context as well. Like even the emphasis on uh, education and how there are lots of rewards around that, but also as a mental health professional, you know that there are significant challenges there as well, where it could lead to incredible amount of stress on the part of the child, right? Uh, The fact that Uh, There is such a high value placed upon education.
1: Oh, yeah. Mm. I mean, that's part of my book, right? Like it was very understandable with my parents coming from that. Again, appreciated, especially when I hear other people did not have that privilege with their parents and my parents did. However, yes, that intense pressure, even to this day, I still navigate through. I'm like, huh, let me make sure that I'm, you know, when my parents ask me, what are you doing? I'm like that, that little old girl comes out and it's so funny that I'm like, do I want to talk to you right now? 엄마, appa, right? I'm like, I don't think so. It's still there. So that is again, a challenge and reward, meaning I so appreciate that hard work ethic that I still live to this day. And then of course, instilled on my kids, there's that cycle I want to break. But then I also know that was something I grappled with growing up. So I talk about it a lot. So the difference would be being able to speak about it. You and I talking about it, it's very healthy. And again, people assume that it's an either or. I'm like, I wish it was. I wish I could say, by the way, you will fully appreciate your Korean culture by the age of 40. That is not true. I'm turning 50 next year and I'm learning, appreciating it more and more, but I'm choosing to, right? There's still things like, oh my gosh, I gotta go to this thing. Or did I just hear that from a Korean elder? You still hear things and you still go, it's a little triggering, but then you go, but wait, look at this, this is nice, right? And that would be the rewards of our culture. And I believe that's for any culture. And And that is the complexity of our cultural identities.
0: And another sort of uh, theme I heard from what you shared was the idea that as you get older, as we get older, there's a maybe more appreciation for our parents' culture in a way that maybe we didn't have when we were younger. And I think the literature in psychological science also backs that up, that there might be a lot of conflict because of acculturation differences when growing up, but then like if they persevere in their relationships, right, that later on in life, there might be a way where not all, but some of those differences might make more sense. And maybe even that we might start to appreciate them.
1: That's well put too. And, that, and I'm glad you pointed out the, the science and everything or the research that is, that is across the board what I'm saying. So when I speak to younger folks like Gen Zs or millennials, I'm careful not to sound condescending, but I'll say, hey, if I had spoken to you when I was, right exactly your age i'd be like yeah let me blast on the, c- the culture it's just that i i have a little bit of life experience that brought me my way with kids and grappling with my own identity that i came to this perspective that is still being you know i would say changed and worked through right it's not a fixed perspective it's constantly evolving that's the word evolving
0: yeah and how neat that you're able to share that with the younger generation yeah, yeah you're doing such such great work. In your work, I see this phrase a lot, which is cultural confidence. And I know what those two words mean. But when they're put together and how you're applying it in your work, what are you getting at? Can you give a maybe a brief overview and how that might look like in your day to day work?
1: Sure, sure. As anything comes and sometimes in the field of psychology, like I call it a Freudian slip. <laughs> so When I said this in front of a bunch of Asian students, now it's been like five or six years, pre-pandemic, I meant to say the word cultural competence. And you know that, everyone knows that. And that word was actually on my screen, but by mistake, I said, confidence, and I kept going and I went, and then I realized my mistake. Oh, I'm I'm like, I'm sorry, students, I meant cultural competence. And they're like, oh, we thought that was a mistake and you meant confidence. In my head, I went, wait a second, I did feel an energy shift when I said confidence and these are Asian American students. So when you use certain words like confidence, which we don't hear a lot, it's not like our parents said, we want you to be confident. It wasn't like that. It was like, you have, to, you have to do this. You have to do that. Everything was expected. Nothing was like now where you hear the language of like kids, we want you to be self-confident. We want to do this. So that word must've been what I say a Freudian slip. <laughs> I actually meant that word. And from that moment I went, I wonder if I could just do like have my own framework. And I was already working on that framework by mistake. It's I say by mistake, but maybe the word is more inadvertently not planned to set out to do a framework, but it came to my head as a family therapist, I think in circles, right? Everything's like evolving like this, nothing's linear. And so the circle came to my mind and the four elements that I speak on the most, which is of course mental health, but then uh, identity intersecting with, it. and then mindfulness practice, which I teach and I practice. And then resilience, which is a big part of our community, the persons of color community, but also all of us, you know, anybody. And so that came about like in my head and then I created it and I just happened to trademark it because I wanted to save that name, but it does not replace. And I always say this cultural competency, cultural competency means something else. Cultural confidence is a mental health framework that I just use. And I use all my curriculum around that. And I'll also share why it was pertinent. You talked about me being a corporate speaker. I was speaking in corporate America pre-pandemic, and then obviously during the pandemic, it tripled because need of everything going on. And that framework became even more important because even pre-pandemic, people didn't quite understand mental health. People didn't quite understand even stress. I would have to like teach the basics and I'd be like, why do I keep teaching the basics? So that's why that framework came about almost like an educator to start a curriculum from scratch where I went, just like when you have math one, math two, like, you know, then you get to pre-calculus and I have kids doing that right now. So I know that. Uh, to have that in mental health, I thought, hey, that this makes sense. I'm constantly talking about anxiety 101 when they don't even know what mental health is. How are they gonna understand anxiety if they don't know what mental health is? So I decided to have like a flagship intro curriculum. I don't call it intro now, but a flagship curric- um, workshop series that touched on all of that. And that's surrounding the cultural confidence framework. And then just built from there and different workshops from there. So there's all these words I say that if I say mental health to you, if I say things like what's your cultural identity and those intersections, the intergenerational stressors, this is all my workshop, then I believe they'll get it to understand the advanced terms like psychological safety, you know, things like that in the workplace that are super important. So that's cultural confidence. And again, it's a mental health framework, promoting healthy emotionality. And I always tell people about healthy emotionality does not mean happy. That's what people think. They're like, I need to be happy, Jeannie. I go, of course, I would love to be happy, but that's not normal to be happy every minute of the day. Health emotionality means you also show anger and that frustration. You're working through it and admitting it. And in our Korean and Asian community, we don't know emotions sometimes. So that is a lot of my work too, going, let's talk about your emotions. And they're like, what? (laughs) And you'd be surprised how some, all generations would be like, or especially the older population saying things like, I I don't know why I'm mad. I'm like, well, you don't need to ask, you don't need to ask why you're mad. You're mad. Something made you mad. You know, they'll be like, Yes. You know, and then they'll get into that and I'll be like, oh, you're working through it. Thanks for sharing why you're mad. And that helps a lot. And that's what we don't do. That's not generally the norm to express your emotions in our culture. That was a long answer.
0: (laughs) No, it's really good. What I gathered was it's foundational. The idea of cultural confidence is foundational to the other aspects that you teach about, that you train people about. And then I also heard that It can also not only relate to teaching about Asian or Korean culture, but also various aspects of foundational things in mental health. Like you mentioned, even emotion regulation is important to talk about as part of cultural confidence.
1: Yes. And Mm -hmm. even in non-Asian populations, which is a lot of corporate America, I talk, I explain what trauma means in that mental health section or racial trauma. That is a lot of our experience today. I've also explained grief all under the section of mental health. And that's super important because you'd be surprised how some people go, yeah, no one really defined grief. No one really defined trauma. They know what it is, but it's nice to have the definition and be like, hey, this is what it is. And then I even share symptoms. I'll even say, are you experiencing this? And again, try not to sound too clinically, but I also try to sound obviously some sense, I'll still say symptoms, you know, these are your symptoms. but this is in corporate America and it's important to educate people on those basics. Then we can build from there, you know? that might be where I got the Asian background of math. <laughs> it's like math, you have to start somewhere to get yeah. to the advanced level.
0: Right, right. Yeah, That's really good. And what's funny is, as you were describing your Freudian slip experience, I yeah. totally had that today when I was reading your bio that I almost said cultural competence, because that's the term that's more familiar in my setting, right? So I totally resonated and agreed with what you share that In our fields, we talk about competence a lot, but especially I think for Korean and Asian American settings, that idea of confidence is also super important.
1: Yeah, because it's all about the emotions, right? I can say that from my field, Uh, I'm more concerned about your emotions and maybe the meaning behind why you're feeling. And so when I say confidence, the word already exudes a certain positivity, you know? So when I said that word, I'll still remember that moment going, Kids, you, students, you know, this was a mistake. They're like, oh, what was a mistake? And I'll be like, the word cultural competence. I meant to say competence. They're like, oh. So I remember thinking, are they disappointed? Hmm. Maybe they wanted me to keep that word. That was important that I still resonate to this day, remembering that moment. Yeah. Yeah. You
0: know? And you mentioned a few sort of approaches already, but can you give like one maybe practical exercise, like an example of a practical exercise designed to get at cultural confidence, and maybe even, I I know you gave some examples based on the corporate setting, but with students, including college students, or maybe young people who are like in high school, like what might what might it look like when you teach about cultural confidence? Like what's the practical exercise that you might try?
1: Sure. Well, it's a lot of what's called so from family therapy, there's a newer therapy called narrative therapy, I tend to incorporate a lot of the storytelling techniques hence we'll talk about later, but hence why K-dramas came into my work uh, as a different way of relating to people, all ages. So yes, there are young people that I work with, but I also work with older folks in corporate America that are, you know, baby boomers that are set in their ways, right? So cultural confidence really is about understanding the intersectionalities of all four of those elements. So actually number one key thing is education. I start there. If you don't understand what I mean by resilience, or what that looks like as it intersects with your identity, as it intersects with mental health and mindfulness practice, then sometimes I'm like, okay, I can't go on to the next workshop unless you understand that resilience is an everyday thing. So I start with the education. Now, when I go to techniques, then it has a lot to do with, honestly, the prompts that I ask. So I really focus on folks sharing and processing through their emotions, even in a workshop. Now, in person, it's powerful. In person I'll ask questions like, what what made you hesitate just now when you were talking about you grieving the loss of this? That's just an example. And that to me is a very powerful moment. They're like, I, I didn't mean, did I hesitate? I'm like, I think you did, but you kind of stopped sharing. And then, so it's obviously, I'll still put on a therapist hat in the middle of a workshop in front of everybody where it's not making you you know, not, not, hopefully not being intrusive, going, you have to share, but just they're in the middle of sharing. And so it's almost a matter of me actually ter- getting the ball in the other person's court. People assume I'm leading. I'm really just guiding you with prompts. So that's another part of my technique of having people share their stories and automatically comes out when I'm like, you just hesitate. And they're like, oh, maybe I hesitated. And then a story comes out. Then what I see happening is, oh, you were about to say something to her. What I do is bring, and this could be on a Zoom, on a Zoom workshop, where people are like, you know, what I was going to say too is I relate to that, blah, 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 blah. That is actually the first step of my mental health and identity workshop of processing, perhaps for the very first time, what it means to ha- understand that intersectionality. People will still go, here's mental health, here's identity, and then here's mindfulness. No, they all intersect. And I don't think people have actually thought that, where it's a and. When I say, and it's an and both and everything. And nothing is black and white as gray, right? Or pretty silver is what I like to say. So that is part of my technique, the storytelling. And then lately I would say the biggest technique is bringing the K drama in, and we can share more about that, but that is need to intersect on all angles. And I can tell you why though, people love stories and everybody relates to a story. It could be the way you're telling it. They're like, oh, you're crying. I'm going to cry too. That could be one thing, even though they have nothing in common with the person or they ha- have in common the story going, happened to me too. Oh my goodness. So that's what you did. I'm going to do that too. And so why is that important? Well, at this day and age of 2023, almost 2024, where belonging is a big part of the workplace that's missing and how why they brought that in, D-E-I-B. By the way, I, I think it should be B-D-E-I. No, that's just that. I'll share that more. What I really feel like you need the belonging before you can have the c I. But I'm bringing that in because I'm seeing such a lack of it, but then such a craving. So those stories are very important. And then there's obviously mindfulness techniques and everything that I teach. So I also focus on dialectical behavioral therapy. Let me share why. I love the dialectics. You can have polar opposite things like you love and hate your mom. You know, we talk about that all the time. We're like, I hate her. Oh, I love her. You know, you love her innately or you love... Your culture innately, but then you also dislike it many of the times. So, I, and the people relate to that all the time. They're like, "You're right. I do love my parents, but I can't stand talking to them." You know? And I'm like, "Me too." You know? Or you know? And so that is always there. So that is another reason why why I love the DBT concept because it teaches a lot of that for us to go. All right, here's this, and here's this, but they can coincide and they actually can coexist. And a lot of people don't think that way, especially Asians. They'll, they'll be like, okay I'd want I want either or or can't we just have this good one? I'm like, I would love that to ha- I would love that. I would love that you never experience grief or stress again. <laughs> but I go you can live your life well by still knowing that you're grieving, you know and you can experience your life well by managing your stress every day. There's no such thing as no stress. I, I, I love I, I love when I say that and I see these deadpan looks of you're right. But I'm like, no. Who lives a stress-free life? I don't know anybody. If they tell you that, then they're they're kind of lying, you know. So it's we all have stress, but we all manage it differently. Some people need more help. So I probably diverted a little bit, but that's a lot of the concepts I bring in. And at the end of my day, I'm still a clinician. I'm still licensed, and it's that's very important to bring in factual and theoretical and evidence based models. So I will always bring in my facts or I'll always bring my data, and you'll hear me go here's data guys, corporate people and Asians that'll go, we don't believe you. We don't believe that the brain can change their mindfulness. I'll be like, oh, you know, well, here's the research. So I always make sure I'm up to date on research and I constantly researching and you know, that's part of your job, right? Research is critical to any clinician's work for, I would say in some sense, the credibility to back up what you're saying. So I always do that in my workshops.
0: That's great. And I think that Especially given the audience that you're speaking to, to be able to bring in that research piece is so critical, and and I'm sure that, I, I mean I've have not attended your sessions, but if I were to attend them, that like you just know how to speak to those audiences, right? And and to bring in that research piece. <laughs> yeah, and, that's
1: important. And you kind of yeah. know, you got to know your audience. If you have engineers, for instance, you got to know you'll get these looks. And I'm like, oh, I see you need more convincing. Okay, well, here's the research, then I'll give that research, whether it's brain research on mindfulness, and that always helps when you bring that data in. And that's why data is so important. And that's why I feel like in our field, Asian mental health is still lacking data. So it's to see if we continue that. That's a big part of my work too, going, it would be great to have more data. And it's segregated, Korean American, Chinese American, Hmong American, you know, all that data I would I would love. So then that, that does Im- impact my work, especially in corporate America when there's a diverse range now. So I'm diverting, but that's important part of what mm-hmm. I do. And then
0: you pair that with storytelling, which is really yes. good too, especially for a group like Asian American who may not feel like, we have our representation in terms of our stories, right? To be able to tell that story as a way to counter that sort of lack of representation or the sil- silencing of our stories, I think is really powerful. So I'm wow. so glad to hear about that approach. Yeah,
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's fun. And,
0: and <laughs> you mentioned Korean drama, so I don't want to hold off any longer because I would love to talk about this.
1: I was like trying to wait to bring them in.
0: Obviously, I'm a fan of Korean drama, but I've, so far, I have not really like, use that part of my interest for my professional work. The closest thing I got to was blogging about a couple of drama series, right? But I know that you do this professionally and I heard about your project, Nuna's Nunchi. The name itself is already compelling, but I also read a little bit about what this is doing. And so just fascinated by the idea of it. And can you tell our listeners what Nuna's Nunchi is about and how you're using that for cultural confidence and other aspects of your work.
1: Sure. Yeah. And again, it all, it came in naturally when I was trying to divert a certain session because it wasn't going well. You know, if you're as a therapist, sometimes sessions don't go well, as in there was a lot of angst and I brought a K-drama in for a different reference point, you know, and it clicked. And then when I started bringing it in at the height of the pandemic in 2020, as a way to cheer people up. Like, I go, let's talk about this K-drama, guys. You guys are depressed on Zoom. These are college students. And I go, let's 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 do it. And then they'd be like, really? I'd be like, yeah. And then we'll talk about mental health connections and we'll talk about things that you see and how they make you feel. And then that clicked too. So that's how Nuna's Nuchi came back when I decided I have a lot of content on this. I should house it somewhere. And so, I, I mean, I, by then, I mean, that was like three years ago, so a little younger, but I was like, oh my gosh, the the students are telling me to start a YouTube or an Instagram. I'm like, oh... You know, and depending on the age, right, I'm Gen X, a proud Gen- Generation X. So I'm sitting there going, oh, we're not into that. You know, that was my first thought going, yes, you young Gen Zs or like older, now they're younger millennials. But I'm like, I don't know. That's not my thing. They're like, why not? And I went, that's true. And so that's how it all started. It's the name of the platform. And it was a given. I already knew that Nunchi was going to be in the name. Why? Because I love the word Nunchi. It's something I grew up with. If you're Korean American, everybody knows what it is. If you're Korean, and I use it a lot in my work where I would have to nunchi what someone might be saying, even in a session, I'd be like, huh, something doesn't feel right. Or, you know, they might, I might see them in a certain way, but then they're sharing something completely different that doesn't make sense. I would have to not just nunchi based on my emotions and context, but also ask the right questions. Nunchi also means going, let me ask this question that might throw them in for a loop that they're like, what? Nobody asked me that. I'm like, well, I'm asking that, right? Based on my Nunchi. So that was a lot of, a big part of my work. So I already knew I'm going to have Nunchi in there. And then Nuna was to be coy and cute. And it sounded good with Nuna's Nunchi. But today it has grown into, I would say, as equal as a platform to incorporate into my talks. And some people now hire me to talk about K-dramas and mental health. And so again, it's all about the storytelling. And of course, K-content has catapulted it to globalization. So- That helps. But even before that, I always tell people, hey, before Squid Game, there was lots of terrific K-dramas that were actually very popular, but mainly in the Asian population. Now it's global, right? Now it's everywhere else. And so a lot of people would agree. They're like, you're right, you're right. The K-dramas were big then. I go, yeah, it's just Squid Game blew it up. And and then now it's, you know, on a different level. So now it means a lot more to a lot more population. But I always tell people, by the way, K-dramas were just beautiful before Squid Game. In fact, Squid Game is not my favorite, you know, but of course to put it on the map. And then the second thing is K-dramas, the reason why I can be very authentic about it and not feel like it's, people go, oh, did you start using it? Because it it, it got so popular. I actually get very irritated with that question. Hey, did you start using K-dramas because of Squid Game and blah, blah, and I went, no. First of all, the fact is, no, I didn't. But then two, the reason why it became natural to use is because they are my self-care. So it was very authentic for me to bring it in because I'm like, well, I like them. In fact, I love them. And I learned a lot about myself and family through them. And then they help me. It's like a catharsis. I express emotions to them. So I go, I bet other people do too. And that's why that's how it went into that and kind of evolved from there. But yeah, I'm just admitting to you when people ask me things like, oh, because I get media asking me things like that. And I'm like, no. No, I didn't decide just to jump on the bandwagon. It may look that way, it look that way, but it was started before, and I've been watching him for like thirty years, you know. So, yeah, so that's how it turned out. And that storytelling again is a great form of addressing mental health. Mental health is not easy, even today. To go, by the way, let's talk about your mental health. But if I go, hey, by the way, did you see that kid drama? You know, the one about the good bad mother. That's what it's called. That's an example of where I'm like, you know what? In episode one, you see a good example of how intergenerational trauma can begin, and people are like, what? And I'm like, yeah. If you want to talk about it, let me know. Just watch the K drama. That's easy for a different conversation. And then we're talking about a character, and that makes it very easy for someone to separate from themselves to go, yeah, yeah. The mom, the mom did that. You know what? That reminds me of my mom. You know, and then you get all these things coming out. It makes for a really good conversation. So that's how it grew from there. Now it's all about the community, how how people bond over. This, these dramas wow. all over
0: the I, world. I love the fact that, like you said, this is authentic to who you are. And yeah. that, you, like you mentioned, that this is something you enjoyed for a long time, right? And you feel passionate about connecting to mental health and identity and Korean culture. So glad that you're doing that. And that you have following, right, who are also interested for various reasons, including the fact that there is now a global interest in Korean yeah. drama, right? Yeah. The one blog piece that I mentioned that I wrote about Korean drama was on the drama series titled The Glory. I forget the Korean glory. name for it, but it was,
1: it was hard. <laughs> it was
0: at The Glory the in glory. Korean. Too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was hard to watch, but I feel like it captured, of course, the consequences of bullying, but also that idea of deeply rooted sort of han or revenge on the part of the characters that's i think in some sense uniquely korean right the idea of vengeance just being suppressed and suppressed and then later coming out and so that's sort of my one foray into korean drama
1: you're right and and it was very popular and it had a lot and i did also talk about that and and I thought it was well done, even though it was a little dark. At the end of the day, that vengeance and Han, everybody does want to see someone get justice served, right? You do want to see that I don't endorse revenge and vengeance. But you do want to see the underdog or someone who has been victimized, you know, and in some sense, bullied and abused, win out in the end. So I think that was part of the theme. It, but I also made clear when I was talking about things, hey, guys, don't necessarily put revenge on your, you know, friends. There's a different way of doing it like being successful, for instance, you know, there's many ways of doing it, but that was a great drama just to bring in conversations about bullying, and the psychological dangers surrounding it in the Korean society. So a lot of my work is also following, if we're talking about Korean American culture. I also follow Korean culture. So I'm very fascinated spending time in Korea and seeing what's going on there, you know, because that's where we're from. And all of that comes from that. And that angst and everything that they feel, I believe it exists in our culture too. It just becomes differently, and and so a lot of the Koreans will assume, I've seen this a lot. Of, they assume that we have it easy, and and then vice versa. We're like, well, you know, you're Korean, well, you're living there. We Korean Americans, in some sense, have to explain a lot to the Korean nationals in Korea. I go, hey, by the way, we struggle a lot with our identity. They're like, what? Isn't it cool to be America? I go, no, because we're Korean, and so. Some of us are like, are we Korean American? And people are saying, you're not Korean, you're not American. And they're like, oh, and I go and try, and you guys don't consider, I'll say to them, some of my friends, you guys consider me a gyokpo or a waegugin, foreigner. And I get that. And I have some Korean Americans that would hate that term. And I go, I get it. Cause it makes us feel so foreign in our own homeland. But then the truth is kind of, we are, you know, I've learned to accept that term a little better. Why am I talking about this? Because that's all of the storytelling. So when in Korea, when I am talking about, hey, did you see the glory? And that's how I bonded with them. They're like, yeah, I go Yeah. What'd you get out of it? And they'll talk about things and all this stuff. And I go, so did we. And what I'm I'm trying to get at is that bond of similar themes that the Korean nationals will not quite understand the Korean Americans. They associate us with the West. But I'm like, hey, just FYI, I identify more Korean. Like I could probably live here. They're like, what? I go, yes, I could. (laughs) Right. I go, I love where I live in the U.S., but it's just that all stems from my work. And, and not just, not now let me just go broader with the Asian population and non-Asian population, it's fascinating to me, which is why I wrote my other book, that they find similarities and, and just belonging through K-dramas as well. For them, it's less so the culture, but the values that they see in the K-dramas, but also the themes like resilience, trauma, right? Bullying, workplace trauma, all of that is universal themes in the K-dramas. And so that is another reason why they relate to all populations. I don't even care what age you are, I'll, I'll argue my way and go, okay, let's let's talk about that, right? They're like, yes, yeah, not for me. I go, maybe, maybe you don't wanna read subtitles and yes, it's a different language, but the themes, I believe you'll resonate, you know? And so it's a lot of my work today, bringing those into any population. I'll just, especially if they ask me, hey, can you bring in a K-drama reference? Sure.
0: Like you have no shortage of examples. Oh, right?
1: no, shortest, no, no shortage. Yeah.
0: I, I also really appreciated the fact that you're using K-drama to connect the gap between Koreans and Korean-Americans, right? Because I think you're right in the sense that Koreans have a very strong in-group identity in a way that, I mean, certainly within Asia, like the Koreans, they don't necessarily see themselves as Asians. They would, I mean, they can check that box on a, on paper, but. Koreans, they have a very distinct identity as Koreans. And same thing, like you mentioned, with Korean-Americans, like that Korean-Americans are viewed as wegogin or foreigners in a way that sometimes can feel very, like it makes me feel defensive when I'm labeled as a foreigner in Korea. But like you mentioned, the K-drama allows you to have those conversations and those connecting points.
1: Yeah, and it was actually this particular year, maybe because I spent most time there this year, that when they said, oh, waegugin, I, it was just ironic because I'm speaking Korean to them, and then I'll, and then I'll just switch to Konglish because there are times I need it. But I decided to do that because that is how they see me. But then the truth is, technically, I am because I am a U.S. citizen. And so, unless I become a Korean citizen, then I could say, no, actually, I'm a Korean citizen too. But I can understand that because I do come across Western, you know, and um, I don't know some of the nuances. I have a deep respect for the things that they do. That I'm like, oh, oh my goodness, I was supposed to do this right. The honorifics and the humbleness is that is what the non-Asian population sees that they're wowed by. So the Western population will tell me, because I work with global populations that are like, Jeannie, is it true that Koreans are this polite? I'm like, yes, (laughs) you know, they do. And then sometimes you're like, oh, wow, I'm really rude. And why am I bringing that up? Because that is all a part of that belonging within our own culture of just knowing, hey, yeah, we are a little Western. We do have to accept that and and i always tell folks and i go you wanted to be accepted growing up why are you fighting when they call you because growing up we're like no we are american right we are american which we are korean american so i go so accept that we're also korean american in korea you know so this particular year i i kind of embraced it and i'll say it but then i still speak the language and i will still do everything korean and then they appreciate that and that's just my identity today because i do have a bicultural identity oh. yeah no, can
0: this is great. I I know that part of this Nuna's Nunchi is also actually visiting different places in Korea. Can you give a little bit of information about that to the listeners? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's that was a big undertaking. Of it started out again with my Nuna's Nunchi platform, where a lot of folks in 2022 followed me on my summer trip to Korea, and that was a vacation trip with my sister, with my sister family, and my parents and my family. And it evolved from there because I remember documenting the trip and showing people, right? But what I did and the added layer I did, on, on, unlike people that might just show this place in Korea, I went, hey, by the way, this place I'm in Korea was where Goblin was filmed, right? So I'll, I'll add that in because I'm a K-drama fan. And then... I think I got enough interest where people would DM me and say, hey, if you ever do a tour, I would go. And I was like, haha, that's funny. I'm never going to do a tour. Never say never. But I remember toward the latter half of actually it was maybe about a year ago. I went, actually, you know what? I could do a tour. Maybe it's just a couple of people. Maybe it's whatever. And then I remember once Jeannie Chang thinks of an idea, I follow through and then literally Over the course of what, eight months, it expanded into a tour company (laughs) in Korea, because you can't give tours in Korea without being legit, right? So I went through all the legal things, but it all relates when people go tours, and then you're a therapist, and then you, I go, it all relates, by the way, because it started out with my K-drama platform. It's K-dramas and mental health. So when they get a tour with me, we're also doing wellness sessions, you know, they get some education on mental health. I do a presentation. So all of that is still part of my work. And I think that's what sets us apart, perhaps from other tours. But yeah, that's, it's K-drama sites around the country of Korea and they get to see some of their favorite places in where they see in the K-dramas and you eat some of the favorite food you see there. And I will have these global travelers that I'm going to tell you now, they floor me with their knowledge. I'm like, what? I don't know that. I'll be like, I have to Google that, you know, because they're so fascinated in the Korean culture. It's very important to me to, I say this to them all the time and they don't quite grasp it. I go, you don't understand what it means to me that you talk to me about my Korean culture. Because growing up, no one talked to me about my Korean culture. Like, let alone even five, six years ago, we didn't get those questions. Five, six years later, we're getting questions like, by the way, how do you make your kimchi? I'm like i don't make him (laughs) you know or how do you do this and then where did you learn this i'm like what so i'm sharing that because all of this at the end of the day i cannot do any of my work if it doesn't benefit my mental health so at the end of the day that's what i was trying to tell people hey i can't do this if uh, it stresses me out of course it's stressful doing this but i make sure that it it it's founded on my own i guess trademark or my my trademark framework, but also my own principles and values, keep doing these tours. So I have to practice what I teach. I can't say, oh, self-care, and then I don't do it. You know, So that's really important to me as I I examine that every day going, okay, why am I doing this, right? Yeah.
0: I really appreciate what you shared because I'll mention this to you quickly that I take a study abroad group to South Korea every other year. So American students from my university they go for like one month or three and a half weeks. So basically a month where I'm like a tour guide, but also the instructor, right? I'm I'm not really a tour guide because we have a company that we work with who set up all the trips, but I'm there with students. And sometimes I have this internal struggle because so many of my college students are drawn to Korea because of K-pop, because of K-drama. And I think it's really encouraging for me to hear from you about how, take that initial interest and make it more about mental health identity learning more about korea beyond sort of the superficial things that they might be interested in and also for your own self-care as well that when i lead these trips i find it's rewarding for me there are challenges right there's the rewards and challenges right but yeah i really appreciated you saying that because you're doing something that goes beyond just touring but also you're connecting it to mental health and well-being and and self-care so I took a lot of good mental notes on what (laughs) I might try with my students the next time I go to Korea let
1: me know we can coordinate I can be there or something make an appearance and show you a k-drama site because you know they're going to show them it's so popular now Sometimes not, they know more things than me. I'm like, what?
0: I might email you, Jeannie, and say, hey, like, we're going here. Do you know <laughs> yeah, of any yeah. cool I'll drama give you some yeah. No,
1: because I'll sit there going. I don't, I don't. Uh, they'll be like, oh, Jeannie, isn't this where BTS did this? I'm like, I have no idea. But I will double check. And then they'll be like, yes, it was. <laughs> I'll be like, wow. <laughs> so Thank you we, for letting me know. Even the tour guys. I have yeah. a local tour guy, right? Even she'll be like, I have no idea if BTS yeah. did this year. There's, you can't keep track anymore, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Yeah, especially I think because-
0: this this generation of students they have a way to figure things out in a way that goes beyond our own knowledge. So, yeah. like you mentioned, speaking of BTS, when we visited Busan as a group, um, mm. like they rode a the taxi to some kind of a cafe operated by I one did. of the B- yeah, yeah one of I the did. BTS members' parents, something like yeah. that. And it's on my tour. I-, I had no idea that that existed, but my students figured it out took a taxi for like 30 minutes to go there
1: that's <laughs> and so made funny. it
0: made it back on time. So I was like,
1: oh, okay, well, that's really cool. Yeah. It's a good, it's actually a very nice cafe. Yeah. It's owned by yeah. one of the members father, but that's funny. And so I'm just telling you, but all of that is beautiful. Now, you know, some people talk, then you have the skeptics going, oh, it's cultural appropriation or, you know, yes, all of that. There's a boundary and yes, we're more than barbecue and all that, but I don't see that in my community. I'll say, Now, I see people going above and beyond the K-dramas and K-pop. They will delve into, hey, why did Jimin, this is a BTS member, why did Jimin say this? Let me delve deeper. Oh, he's saying this because it means this in Korean culture. I have found that with my community, that I am floored that they go deep with the facts and the history to the point that I went, oh, so this is not just a K-pop song. This is not just you're falling in love with the idols. This is not just the cute K-drama actors. They are actually genuinely curious about the culture. And that's mm-hmm. what I see. So I share that with folks. Going, no, I don't see that. I see them. They are genuine <laughs> to the point that I'm like, oh my god, I'm popular. Have you ever had that, Paul? You're like, you want to know about my language? If you... sometimes I'll say to them, if you speak better than me, we are going to have a problem. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like language classes, right? Yeah. Then yeah. I'm like, did you just say that to me in Korean? And I, it's just impressive. Yeah. So yeah, I share that because we could talk about DNI shortly, but there's there's some of that there too as well as we. As the globalization of Korean content is there, where where is the boundary, or what does that look like, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: no, that's really well put. I, it's always a struggle for me, like an internal struggle. That on one hand, uh, there's such a global interest uh, in South Korea, including from my American college students, where. South Korea study abroad is one of the most popular ones on campus. So I'm personally benefiting from that kind of interest, right? On the other hand, like you mentioned, I don't want it to be only about K-drama and K-pop. I want there to be a meaningful engagement of Korean culture. Mm -hmm. And so I try to uh, really infuse those elements when we go to Korea, including you might I mean you probably do something similar but I try to take them to a university counseling center in Korea and that leads to some really fascinating conversations about stigma about culturally appropriate services so yeah I'm I'm happy to talk more about that idea with you I would you love later to talk about more. Yeah. I love mm-hmm. that you just mm-hmm.
1: stem something interested in me so yeah because I'll tell you I'll tell you from people so far I've only done two tours but and then there's going to be more next year a lot of folks do go initially going, I'm going to sign up for Genius Tour. It's K dramas and some K pop. But really, at the end of the day, when they're there, they are fascinating with the culture. They're like, okay, you know, why do you guys keep bowing this way? Or do you really drink like this? You know, when you turn to the side, and like that. I'm like, I'm bringing that up because even as a Korean American, you want to see them also understand your culture, you know? So that is very important. That is a big part of my experience it's more than just a tour
0: yeah i mean like you said we could talk about drama forever right but (laughs) i also wanted to ask this question jeannie which is in your book you're open about your christian faith and how that impacted you both personally and also professionally as you as i shared with you many but not all of my listeners are christian scholars wanting to meaningfully integrate their faith into this kind of work so to the degree that you're comfortable what are some ways that you do that? And maybe from the framework of what are some effective ways to do that and not so effective ways?
1: Yeah, first of all, having your own, I would say, faith, wherever that is, spirituality or religion is a big part of your identity as well, number one. So when I hear that in someone's language, when they're speaking to me, whether it's in public, in a workshop, or in a session, I do Get I I cut them on the I kind of jump on the bandwagon to talk about that. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, you just said you pray. Okay, so tell me how you pray. Like, what do you mean by that? They're like, Well, I pray when I'm so stressed out. The reason why I bring that in, because those are good coping techniques when you have faith in something or hope, right? So my Christian faith is what sustained me. And actually, it's so funny. I think I was talking to a non Christian or somebody who is whatever in some sense, oh, I'm gonna be neutral. They go, your book was a lot about Christian faith. So it got me intrigued about that. And I went, is my book a lot about my Christian? I, that's what made me realize it, I didn't seek a book to talk about my faith. I sought saw, I saw an authentic book to talk about what I was going through, but my faith is what sustained me. And if you know that incident that I talk about early on, that incident was critical to this day. It's very surreal, but I have had nobody come to me going, I don't believe that. No, I've had nobody say that maybe because they read how authentic it was, but that was a legit... Thing that happened to me, but what brought me back to that moment of maybe reality of like, wait a second, what am I doing? Was my Christian faith going? The learnings I learned in Sunday school—you know, those who go to Sunday school know—you sit there going, "Oh my gosh, this is Sunday school." But I was—I was founded in that. And that was the knowledge. That's why it's really important what you learn when you're a child. And so that to this day still is a big part of my work. So every time I hear someone bring up faith or prayer or whatever faith whatever uh, religion they are i bring it in to their work into my work into the into the session into a way to help them and so when they do christian faith then there i've gotten some folks that said, i said are you a christian if they ask me straight out in a session i will say yes you know but i will not make it about me going yeah, so you got to believe this right and i don't do that and so i think to talk about the wrong approach would be We have to be careful about self-disclosure and that is why i'm more on the clinical side of things i will tell you now my christian community i love them but some folks have asked why didn't you just do christian counseling and i went because that's not, that's not therapy. That's like, what are you talking about? Uh, Like, I didn't know quite how to answer that. It was a little bit accusatory maybe. And I went, well, and then I learned how to answer it later on when I actually became a therapist, I went, well, number one, I wanted to understand the clinical aspect, the actual core and read all this research. Christian counseling doesn't do that. They're like, it doesn't. So that's when I had to explain what therapy is or, you know, and so that's number one and educating folks on that. But then two is also making sure that, you know, out there, there's a lot of that legalist legalist perspective and i grew up in the church so i understand all those perspectives going okay this is what's happening and sometimes i say to myself thank goodness i was raised a christian or am sound in my faith because i don't know if i would be a christian today (laughs) i say this as a joke and being very authentic because there are christians that have hurt me right but i've been like well that's okay, because I am I know my faith, right? Or there are Christians that'll say horrendous things to clients that come see me. And I'll be like, who just said that? And then, because I'll have to share with me, why are they here? I ask them, what brought, brought you here? Sometimes you will get these terrible, sadly sad stories of folks that were kicked out of their own church, you know, a church that I would go to or traumatized through a church through perspectives and ridicule. And when you hear that, that's when I go, thank goodness, I'm, I'm, fa- I'm sound in my faith. Because I could easily go, okay, Christians are terrible, right? And you hear that still to this day. So there is a very big balance of how you balance your faith, how you also balance other people's perspectives. So it's, again, an and thing. If you can have some perspectives that, that are polarizing, I'm like, okay, I understand why you're there. I also understand that too. But you are both saying you're Christian, you know? So there are some people going, you're not Christian. I'd be like, well, how can you say that to somebody They know their own relationship with God and going going all there, right? So that is a big part of my, my, it's actually what grounds our family. That is what sustains me. So in the midst of adversity, even when I'm in the middle of COVID, how do I do my work? I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to pray. Right. So that, I don't think I could do my work without that. Right. And so I would say church and a lot of how we attend church now is different because now we're virtual, I will say, I appreciate that because sometimes I'd be like, oh, we didn't go to church today. Oh, we could see the sermon online. (laughs) And then sometimes, I don't know if you know Tim Keller who recently passed. We were so sad. I went to NYU. So I went to church. So I followed him and we would even still, my husband and I would still listen to his messages, even way past not going to his church. Right. So that was me, me appreciating the whole virtualization of, right church today. Even though we're not in person, we can still get those messages. And yes, it's important to have the church community in person, but it also means more when you're listening to things and practicing it. So at the end of the day, yeah, that book was, if people read about that story, that is still one of the, I think about it almost every other day. I remember like it was yesterday. I could just, the tingling in my hands, but I love that as I'm sharing it. No one said, that's kind of a weird, yeah, really. You made that up. No one has ever said that to me. How that I think about it? Because a lot of people could have gone like, what was that? You know, but no one said that because I think I was very genuine when I said this happened to me. Yeah.
0: And it's a religious experience that has allowed you to keep going back to, yeah, that was a powerful encounter and yeah, it gives you meaning in life, right? So yeah. I really yeah. appreciate you sharing that. And also your perspective about the need to balance the yeah. sort of the, I guess critiquing of Christianity, right? But also not letting that critique become so overwhelming in a way that it leads to losing of our own faith. I think oh. sometimes in my work, especially in belonging DEI work, there's so much critique of how Christians are falling short that we yeah. also sometimes fail to see how Christianity has a lot of good to offer when it comes to belonging work, right? And yeah, that needs to be highlighted as well, so.
1: Actually, I got to bring that in. That Mm. is so powerful because even in when people ask me, especially second generation, people my age are caring for their aging parents. They'll ask me questions all the time of resources. This is within the Asian population. You know, what's the first thing I recommend besides professional help in therapy is churches. I'm like, Hey, do you guys go to church? I'm not trying to, you know, push the religion, but I want to know if you go to a, a church or a synagogue or something. They're like, Oh no. And I like, I go, you know, your parent might benefit from that community. So that is actually a big part of my resource because the first generation, that is where they form a lot of their relationships from my experience. And so I've shared that. And I think for the most part, people are like, you know what, that was the best idea. My parents found some like Chinese speakers at the church or like, you know, among speakers, I share about certain cases that I've worked with that I'm like, that's amazing. And again, that's part of the mental health of a family, right, where a caretaker like my age is caring for their aging parents, but cannot communicate. And there's that angst in their own traumas, right? And they send them to a church or they go together at church and they're like, oh my gosh, my parents are different. And now they have friends and they don't even hang out with us. I'm like, that is great to hear. So that church can be so beautiful in that way. What you said with belonging. Yeah. And so I think that's important, again, to share those kind of stories. We don't, We see the bad stories. It's always the bad stories in the media or from people telling you, but there are so many more powerful stories that need to be also shared. That's right.
0: Well put. And Jeannie, I have two questions that I ask all my guests. So the first one is, do you have any advice for those who are just starting out their careers, including in mental health, belonging and DEI work, academia, and who are maybe interested in similar kind of, I guess, vocational things that you're interested in? And by that, what I mean is you're so innovative. You, in some sense, took a very non-traditional path when it comes to being a mental health professional. I mean, certainly being a licensed men- marriage and family therapist, right? That's that's not what I mean by non-traditional, but what you're doing with, with your uh, training, like the, the, the corporate uh, outreach, the tours, all of that's very non-typical. So I'm curious if you had a, a device for those who are thinking about those kinds of approaches.
1: Yeah, I, I think again, it came, I, I would say one thing that gets stressful though, is if you force it, you know, there's people going, I wanna do this and I go, well, why do you wanna do it? For me, a lot of it came naturally because of my background, you know, I didn't start out my career in mental health. I don't know if you know that, but I started as a journalist. So I started as a journalist and then I went to business school. So technically this is my third career. So a lot of it came natural using those other skills. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. But I do tell people, yeah, you can definitely be innovative. Just don't try to emulate someone else, like going, well, do you need this? I go, why can't you could emulate it as in, hey, I'm going to also try to be a corporate speaker. But there are times when they force it that I'm like, why are you forcing it? Like, like, are you interested at all? Do you know what corporate America is like, right? They have to study it. And I would say in some sense, getting experience like an intern. You know how we, when we we get our license, we have to really get those hours. And I still remember to this day, but some of those experiences were so rewarding because I was being exposed to all different clinical sectors. I say, you need to expose yourself to corporate sectors. If you're telling me you want to talk in a corporate workshop, do you know what a corporate workplace looks like? A lot of people say, no, not really. Then I go, then how would you be able to speak about that? Because I'm not just speaking about mental health. I'm talking about mental health in the workplace. So I have to give case examples of like, oh, an executive will say this. And so a lot of what I tell people is you can gain that experience by attending workshops, getting to know professionals, you know, asking those questions, be a suit student yourself, you know, to get to to be innovative. Because innovation is all about learning. And I'll find that a lot of clinicians will be like, here's where I'm at. So this is what I want to do. I'm like, okay, but you still got to learn. Like I still have to do those CEs. We still got it. So that's an example of you got to learn. And even now you got to know what the latest trends are, not only in clinical research, but in, you know, mental health, but also in student populations, also student campuses. You're, you're on a campus. I have to know what's going on in corporate America. So I think that's all me being a student as well as I'm teaching, you know, and so that's kind of the biggest advice I give. And then I also will say that these days it, we can be innovative. So there's many different methods to being a therapist in different pockets of things. And I'm I'm finding especially Asian uh, therapists, they need that everywhere. And it's not just in workplaces. It could be college campuses have such a need for Asian mental health um, clinicians. I'll find that. And they'll reach out to me going, nope, I can't do it. So I'm just giving examples of where you could find your passion and maybe it is in college. Is it here? Don't try to do everything at once. And And by the way, because this is my third career, I'm still evolving. So I always tell people, it's uh, apples and oranges. Don't compare. That's when we start getting down this rabbit hole of like, well, they did it this way. You're your unique person. So I think that's why it made sense for me. Cause I just followed what made sense. And then let me here. If that, if
0: that makes sense. What I'm hearing from you is again, that theme of a- authenticity being important, true yeah. to your training, true to who you are. And I'm sure you didn't set out to think that you'll be doing this now, right? But your business training, your uh, journalism training, all of that is now playing a part in you doing your work effectively. So that idea of what kind of work makes sense for you, I think is a really good advice.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, it just came naturally. And it's always about just as we talk about mindfulness, practice mindfulness and go, wait, why am I doing this? Does this make sense? There's some things that didn't make sense that I've learned to say no to. And that's important too. Just because you're asked to do something and you think it's cool, doesn't mean it makes sense. So yeah, and maybe that's just my age going, no, I'm not going to do it, <laughs> you know? But it's okay if you're learning to say no. And in our Asian pocket of our uh, what, what we learned growing up, saying no isn't something we learned innately. So we need to practice that. And the, no, I know I should be doing 50,000 things. I'm like, why do you, why do you have to do 50? things that's what we're taught but that's not necessarily healthy so yeah good advice Mm -hmm. and my final
0: question is kind of a fun one or it could be a serious one as well but without knowing who my next guest is I don't know off the top of my head what kind of a question might you pose to the next guest like if you could ask my next guest any question about well like what we talked about today or something related to teaching what might it be yeah
1: Yeah. I think it would be why do you love what you're doing? And if you can tell, I there's a lot of assumptions in there that I'm assuming they love what they're doing. And I think that's important because then they might actually go, oh, you know what? I don't love what I'm doing. Or, oh my goodness, that's a tough one. It's assuming that, I, that they love what they're doing. So that's what I would ask. And that's actually a mindful question I ask to clients and executives going, why do you love what you're doing? And they're like, what? And then it gets them to examine their life, going, Oh my goodness, I lost sight of why I want to do this. So that would be my question.
0: Such an important question. Thank you. <laughs> I'll be sure to ask it. Thank you, Jeannie, for your time today. Before we log off of our session, do you have any other things you'd like to say?
1: Sure. It would be a plug for my book. My plug for Nuna's Nunchi, uh, my first book as writing about K-dramas for mental health. So the Amazon link is available and it'll be released in May. So May 2024. I hope people enjoy reading uh, what I have to say about K-dramas and mental health, but there's stories in there. It's not just me, right? It's about the stories that I've been exposed to and people have shared with me. That have been a blessing.
0: Congratulations on the book and look forward to reading it.
1: Thank you for listening to the Cross-Cultural Psych Podcast
0: with Dr. Paul young bin Kim. We hope this content was meaningful. If you enjoyed the podcast, we invite you to write a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Also, let us know what you'd like to see covered in future episodes. We hope you'll join us
1: next time.